Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property, presented by the Indiana University Maurer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Asan Sohail. I'm Graham Christian. And I'm Rob Kesslink. And today we will be discussing the right to repair and its implications in intellectual property. Rob, do you want to get us started? Yeah, sure. So farmers have historically had the ability to repair their tractors. Uh, you know, uh, the basic mechanical formulation of a tractor has been around for you know, about 100 years or more than that. However, with the growing computerization of nearly, nearly everything in our lives, it's no longer possible for these poor old farmers to you know, repair their tractors. Uh, a good case of this uh, is that in early 2022, Donald DeLine, a corn and soybean farmer from Charleston, Missouri, brought a Sherman antitrust suit against John Deere, the largest manufacturer of tractors in the United States. Beginning in about 2000, John Deere started installing control area network uh, buses on their tractors, or CAN buses. These CAN buses allow different sensors within the tractor to communicate with each other, and if a single sensor senses an error, the tractor can, can enter, enter into limp mode, or can only operate enough for it to get back to where it can be repaired, such as the to a trailer or to the barn. The tractor can then only be, be repaired by the use of John Deere's service advisor device, which as you may have guessed by now, is only owned and used by John Deere's dealerships. In response to scenarios like this one, approximately 20 states have passed these so-called right-to-repair laws, which require companies to give consumers the ability to repair their own devices. Just recently, New York passed a comprehensive right-to-repair bill that guarantees that consumers can hire whomever they want to repair the electronics, requires manufacturers to make tools, parts, and instructions for repair available to to both consumers and third-party repair services. Uh, it applies to applies broadly to uh, so-called digital electronic products, making it the most comprehensive state law covering the right to repair. However, it exempts several categories of products, including motor vehicles, home appliances, and medical devices. I think there's a good case for medical devices and maybe some motor vehicle repairs like airbags uh, to be exempted from the right to repair but I don't see a reason for there to be an exemption for home appliances. What do you guys think? Why do you think that there should not be an exemption for home license? What makes home appliances, what makes home appliances special? Yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm kind of wondering. Um, I, obviously a medical device, you don't want just anyone to go to repair a medical device because someone's life can very well be on the, on the edge. Like, like if you were to repair, say a ventilator and a, that would not be properly repaired, it could kill someone. And same way with like an airbag on a car. But I don't think that, say, a refrigerator should be exempt from right to repair laws because the refrigerator is not going to kill anyone unless it falls on someone, of course. Uh, what if, how about we table this discussion for now and, and, you know, maybe we can just talk a little bit more about what really is a right to repair and, and how that ties into um, a patent perspective. In, in patent law, we've been talking about defenses to infringement and uh, the distinction between repair and reconstruction is is one of those defenses, but the right to repair is kind of a broader issue in an antitrust sense, and and it hits on um, largely contracts, which is which is kind of you know where the patent law derived philosophies and doctrines are are from, and so you know from from a antitrust perspective, companies. Um, can can create these licenses, these express or implied agreements um, when they sell things, 
that says, as a buyer, as a consumer of this product, I can't go out and repair it on my own without authorized consent. Now, a lot of New York laws, is that's one example, a lot of states are coming out and, and saying this is a violation of antitrust laws. We also just kind of see this outside of an antitrust perspective, just in terms of patent law. I mean, the distinction between repair is bred out of the exhaustion doctrine, right? So exhaustion, um, for those of you who don't know, it's another defense to infringement. And it says after something has been sold, the consumer has a right to then sell and, and use that product as they would their own property. And springs from the bundle of rights theories of property. And with that is there's the implied license to use it. However, that gets a little bit hairy uh, in, in certain applications. And, and that's, you know, along with this new kind of discussion of antitrust, there's this new discussion of when products... Um, need to be repaired, whether or not that itself, the repairing of it is an infringement or, you know, whether it's a reconstruction. And and Asan's going to kind of get into the weeds on that, but it's an interesting kind of, um, I guess, tributary of, you know, the right to repair specifically, you know, in a patent law context. So basically the key issue for patents in this right to repair is this distinction between the terms repair and reconstruction, which allow you to determine whether an activity is permissible or not. So repair is a complete defense to a claim of patent infringement, which means that a purchaser of a patent article has the rights of any personal property, which includes the right to use, to repair, modify, discard, or resell. In case law, permissible repair is usually found to include disassembly, refurbishing, cleaning, modifying, and resizing of unpatented components of a patented system. On the other hand, reconstruction is found where there is more showing of a recreation of a new article after the patent article has been spent. So the Federal Circuit has stated that something is spent when it is not practical or feasible to keep using it. The line between repair and reconstruction is not that clear and is very fact-specific. So just to give a couple of examples, um, the Supreme Court in Wilbur Ellis v. Cuther found repair even though the purchaser was involved in extensive refurbishment which included modification and resizing of many parts of the patented machine. And in comparison, the Supreme Court found reconstruction in Sandvik v. EJ where a patented grill bit was found to be recreated because a new tip was constructed after the original could not be reshaped or reused anymore, even though the bit was part of the whole patented system. So I guess the rationale behind this whole difference in repair, uh, repair and reconstruction is that reconstruction um, tends to be unfair to patent holders because you're essentially renewing the patented article over and over without paying each copy of the patented article. But I guess an argument against that is that cutting at the same time, this cuts against your rights as a property owner to use the product as you want. So I guess, do you think there is a balance or which side do you guys lean on? It kind of almost reminds me of the, the ship of a thesis, you know, where the question kind of arises as to when do you have a new article? Like if you're to repair a, you know, repair a ship, is it still the same ship? You know, um, so I think it is kind of a hard question like what's the difference between repairing and reconstructing it's, it's, it's going to be as you said earlier it's very fact dependent and it's going to be dependent on you know what kind of devices you're using graham any thoughts i've read this law review article um the challenges of 3d printing and one of the proposals intersects with with what you were just talking about one of the landmark cases in this doctrine it's auro 
uh, R01, the holding there is that uh, making sequential replacements of one unpatented part or different parts within a patented device is permissible repair. But this article proposes this all or nothing approach. So if the entire device is not copied, it's not reconstruction. So that's, you know, one possible way of you know, addressing this distinction. Um, another thing is shifting the burden of proof. So in um, patent infringement cases, there's uh, the burden of proof on the defendant that they must present enough evidence to prove that some activity is not an infringing construction or, you know, whatever the defense may be. But in cases like this, perhaps, you know, if the defendant simply explains that they were replacing something that was necessary to preserve an object's life, plaintiff would then have the burden of showing the defendant's item was, in fact, a new article. So, so it's kind of a, a shift in proof there. And that's, that's me pulling from the language of this law review article. Um, I just, I think, I, I kind of like having a conversation. I'd like to have a conversation about, you know, what are some of the very practical implications of this rule? And, and in 3D printing, we see a lot of that. You know, everyone... An increasing amount of people have 3D printers these days, and it's a very practical, very useful tool, especially when replacing component parts. You know, so so one example is, you know, the lost remote cover. You can just go print that out, but after you do that and and you actually reconstruct it all together, are you infringing? You know, what are what are some other, you know, just very practical implications of this? doctrine i think one of the big issues is that it just it's a lot more expensive for consumers especially in like regular products like let's say you your car if you want to replace a part and you don't want to go to get an original dealer part um you could either 3d print or find like a third party product that's a lot cheaper but you can't do that because of these um laws that are in place and intellectual property rights that might prevent you from doing that and maybe you won't be able to afford or get into like actually fixing it because of that. So I guess that's one of the implications that comes out of this. And then I think we should talk about the warranty issue that, you know, if you go and have a third party operate it on your, uh, on your vehicle for a repair, it, you know, could very well avoid the warranty, uh, just depending on the specifics of the, of the contract that the warranty is. That's, that's another factor that's going to go and sort of dissuade consumers from uh, repairing the items that they own. Let's also talk about sort of the antitrust angle. Uh, to the right to repair. Of course, the cause of action, the John Deere case, came out of a out of the Sherman antitrust laws. DeLine, the farmer in that case, specifically claims that John Deere has violated Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act by forcefully consolidating dealerships, which reduces interbrand competition. That is a competition within the John Deere brand between dealers for repair services. DeLine also alleges that John Deere has violated Section 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act by monopolizing the John Deere repair market in a manner that harms consumers. DeLine is seeking both damages as well as equitable relief in the form of John Deere making its software available at reasonable prices to consumers. The case is still in the pretrial phases, and it doesn't seem that John Deere has presented any defenses so far, but it will be interesting to see how this case pans out. Which brings us to the, the, the sort of the last immediate issue that I kind of saw, at least with the New York law that we mentioned earlier, is uh, federal preemption of state laws. The aforementioned New York right to repair law reminds me of, of the recent California Prop 12 ballot measure, which requires meat sold in California to be raised according to certain ethical standards, regardless of where it was raised, which recently had oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court and National Pork Producers Council v. Ross. Sort of the issue in uh, National Pork Producers Council 
and with the New York right to pair law is that in both cases, the state is imposing certain duties on manufacturers or you know producers of consumer goods, even if it's being produced in, in another state. Like the New York law uh, required manufacturers to make available to consumers uh, uh, to give them resources at reasonable prices to repair the consumer's goods. And just depending on how the, the Supreme Court decides National Pork Producers Council, I could see the New York law being declared unconstitutional as being an undue burden on interstate commerce. But again, that's just speculation. It's interesting. So the the dormant commerce clause angle of all this, you have these state antitrust laws impinging on federal patent laws. And, you know, federal patent laws have all these defenses and, you know, exceptions to those defenses, whereas, you know, these these state antitrust laws more or less prevent patent creators from getting more out of their patent than they would like. You know, maybe the patent law entitles them to uh, in certain situations. So so I, there's definitely a lot of issues here, and I, and I think it's an interesting topic. And Rob, I, I appreciate that you brought it up for us so we can discuss it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at C-I-P-R-M-A-U-R-I-P-T-H or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next week.